Damn it, Travis, you broke me! What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, episode 145, colon, Ray. I am your host, the chilly George Terran, along with the man, the myth, the sun to my dark, shady horribleness, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you? I am fine and dandy. That might be the first time anyone's ever described me in such glowing terms. I usually, I used I mean, to be the sun. Haven't they changed the other thing? Haven't they changed what it was? No. <laughs> now I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'm it. Uh, it's a, it's, it is getting into the cooler months here in Melbourne. If you're yes. any of our friends uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, perhaps listening to mm. the audio version, mm. um, you're coming into your summer and you're welcome to it because it sounds like it's going to get pretty warm. Mm. Um, I, mm. I enjoy the cooler months, though I, I must say, I don't experience them in the same visceral manner that my um, uh, beanie co-host does up there in the mountains. Yes, and in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be celebrating my birthday in the way that only I know how, and that is throwing myself down a mountain strapped to a piece of wood and calling it snowboarding. snowboarding. Very <laughs> exciting. Huh? Yeah, it's, you know, the really weird thing is that, like, you've been here for 10 years. I've lived here my whole life, and you've been to the snow more times than I've been in 10 years, so... Well, um, invitation to come on up. When is it? Uh, I'm going to be going up from the 10th to the 13th, which is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And Monday See, it's not impossible. Yeah. It's not impossible because we were going to go to the soccer um, on the 11th uh, here in Melbourne. Um, mm -hmm. uh, Brazil, we're playing Argentina here in Melbourne. Um, English football in Australia with not an Australian team. Um. <laughs> So, look, you know my partner is of Argentinian heritage, and she would probably have a great deal to say about you calling soccer English football, um, considering it's not necessarily English. This is such a British perspective on things. I'm like, you know, I mean, like, Egyptian artifacts, else. they're now British artifacts, you know. Nowhere Global else in the world calls it football except in england where it is the only one that makes sense because you use your foot to kick the ball uh, that's potentially true um though uh, i'm gonna go ahead and say i don't think that's true um i, I did suggest in a country where it's borderline religion like brazil or argentina i suspect they call it football there too but i haven't been there so i can't say but either way yeah. the uh, argentinians decided they did they signed a contract and then uh, a la, um, you know, WWE, if you know, you know, um, <laughs> they decided not to turn up. Um, and, <laughs> um, no. So the game has been cancelled. So unfortunately, I have a free weekend, but I, I don't know if I can afford to go to the snow. That's the thing about the uh, snow here yeah. in Australia. It is eye-wateringly expensive to visit the mm -hmm. snow. Tragically, so they do use the frozen tears to help actually keep the Make artificial snow. It's it's redonkulously expensive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And considering just the general quality of it, but never mind. I'm keeping a tradition. I'm trying to keep a tradition going. Back in the UK on my birthday, I would catch a flight over to one of the very, 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 very few actual sandy beaches on the UK coast of Cornwall. And I would attempt to surf. I broke my <laughs> my surfing instructor's nose accidentally on my first time. And I would just do that. I would sit in a pub and drink lots of lots of lots of Cornish cider and sleep in a tent 
And now I do the winter version with snowboarding. Uh, I think it's a fine idea to keep your traditions. If you can, like, trust me, if I could afford it, hmm. I would love to go to the snow. And the thing is that I wouldn't actually go skiing. I don't Not want to yet. break a leg. It's almost certainly going to break a leg or something. I just want to go and find a cozy bar that has warm cocktails and, mm-hmm. you know, sit around talking shit to people like I know what I know anything about snow sports. Well, we could do a podcast from there. Uh, trust me, I would adore it. But like I said, I, I um, God, the that cost of getting up there is just staggering. Yeah, yeah, it's pricey. But, ladies and gentlemen, we have ambled for four minutes. Goodness gracious me, we have clearly not got anything to talk about. That's a lie. We have many things to talk about this week. We are talking about our chain movie of the week, Ray, which I picked last week, starring Jamie Foxx and Kerry Washington, as well as a slew of I Know That Guy. Um, with Travis is going to be telling us our next link in the chain. Um, Travis watched Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum in The Lost City. I watched Michelle Yao be fantastic in everything, everywhere, all at once. Spoilers. Mm-hmm. We've got uh, thoughts on Strange New Worlds, as well as a couple of Apple TV shows. So get your... Get your panties out of a twist i i'm just ignore that we'll move on get yourself a cup of tea sit down with your snacks if you're watching the show lucky you if you're not watching um we do stream live uh Mm -hmm. roughly 7 30 p.m australian eastern standard time um the youtubes the twitch uh facebook um Mm. uh you know get up early we used to have people from massachusetts getting up before in the bloody morning to watch and like you know you're letting us down rest of the world um, <laughs> or you can just obviously listen to the audio version like you are now. And exactly. Should we start with the uh, the train film? Yeah, let's go get straight on to Ray. So this is a movie that neither of us have watched, right? No, I'd never seen this before. Yeah, so this was, um, I was just reading some of the trivia about it. It was uh, released in 2004 and was very much an Oscar darling when it came out. Uh, this is a biography, one of the first... Um, musical biography of the new kind of age, so shall we say, uh, the gold, new golden age of um, Oscar-winning movies to, to come out uh, following the life and career of legendary rhythm and blues musician Ray Charles from his humble beginnings in the South where he went blind at age seven to his meteoric rise to stardom during the 50s and 60s. Um yeah, this very much finishes up when he gets to about 49 or 50 years old. Um, initial so, This is a strange film. Mm. Um, I'm going to be flat out start and say I didn't like it very much. I agree. Um, you're correct. It was an Oscar darling. It won two awards, Best uh, best Actor uh, for Jamie Foxx in the lead role mm. and, it, uh, and Best Achievement in Sound Mixing. Did uh, missed out a motion picture of a year at directing, mm-hmm. film editing, and costume design. That's just mm-hmm. got six nominations is very respectable. And I've got no idea what the Academy saw. I mean, yeah, it was certainly not in the directing. <laughs> yeah. Um, the acting, the Jamie, straight out, Jamie Foxx deserves that award because yes. he was fucking incredible. And this may be one of the best performances in a very average film that I've seen in a long, long time. I'm going back to, I think, yeah. There was a film called Black Mass, which is an awful, oh, course, awful yeah. gangster movie, but Johnny Depp just owned in it, though. Yeah. Very unfashionable to mention his name these days, I think, file under Kevin Spacey. 
Well, uh, to, to be confirmed, shall we say, by Lee. Uh, no, it's trust <laughs> me. It's I'm not talking about the current events. I'm talking about his track record. The guy is a piece of shit. Um, no, I'm going to get the fanboys up in my face now. Oh, okay. Um, but either way, he, he was incredible in that film, which is yes. very average. One. And, and, and mm-hmm. Jimmy Fox, you just look at him and you're like, that is Ray Charles. Yes, he, he absolutely did. nails every single mannerism. And it's not the the comedic parody because because I mean Ray Charles is famous for for the way that he moved at the piano while he sang and things like that and it could so easily have just fallen into the side of fast but this it's just him and there are moments especially where they're kind of doing filming of in the later parts where there's the crowds and stuff and stuff like are they using actual footage and they've coloured it because you can't really tell he, he embodies he basically occupies yeah. the body of so he, yeah. he plays all the piano parts mm-hmm. uh uh jamie fox as well mm-hmm. and um i don't sure and i know you're a big kanye west fan so you would probably be familiar with his hit single from about 2006 uh gold digger mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and that's think. actually that samples a ray charles song um mm-hmm. i forget the name uh she gives me money. She gives me money. Um, that is Jamie Foxx. That is not yeah. Ray Charles singing the song. So mm-hmm. um, apparently he's it's it's remarkable how much he can yeah. do a, an impression of his singing as well, which is quite yeah. a quite a, quite astonishing. So full respect to Jamie Foxx. The rest of the film, it struggles for me. It, this is um, two hours and 30 minutes. You and feel it that feels as well. Like, yeah. It's funny, I was sitting there thinking, so the next, I think maybe a year after this, you made a good point. He's kind of itself a trend of these mm. sorts of films. For a year after this, um, Reese Witherspoon won an Academy Award for her role in Walk the Line. Yeah. Which I think is a much, much, much better film than this. Um, uh, there's much, that said, as good as Joaquin is in that film, I don't think mm. he's as good as Jamie Foxx in this. Um, but they were going, oh, surely that film was like significantly shorter. It's fits. That's two hours, 16 minutes. So, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's not unusual for this type of film to go that long i guess if you've got a, a career and a life as celebrated as someone like johnny cash or uh ray charles you can you can um you need some time to explain it the thing is i don't know that they really did explain his life terribly well here it it feels very patchworky as as a narrative like you have these um kind of flashback sequences to him as a child as he loses his sight and then leaves home but it just seems randomly intermingled with the development of his life as a performer and it never seems to particularly inform on what you've just seen in his development it's like there's there's no mirroring going on or anything like that and we've talked about this as a problem for biopics in the past where we talked about the steve jobs and the danny boyle one where it just focused on three key evenings and the idea of boiling down someone's life to a two-hour movie it's somewhat insulting especially for someone with as much talent as ray charles so I get the point of it jumping because it jumps a lot throughout, let's say, 30 years of his life, realistically. Um, but, yeah, the the narrative thread throughout it, it just feels so... It's jumpy. It, um, yeah. it doesn't really hit a, hit a rhythm, I think, maybe, is the right way of putting it. Yeah. Um, 
And I, I think maybe it has something to do with the structure of the story. And as you sort of noted, we're constantly jumping back and forth mm. between, you know, the adult and successful Ray Charles or you know, on the road to success mm. Ray Charles back to childhood memories and very important childhood moments of his brother drowning and him losing his sight and his mother, you know, standing up against a neighbor, proving that, you know, you have to stand up for yourself against people who are trying to rip you off and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. You're like, I'm not saying they shouldn't have included those moments because they're obviously crucial to, you know, especially him losing his sight. Like it's in, you know, um, crucial to the, the person he became the way mm. the performer he became, but the way we're kind of going, blah, blah, blah. Here's a bunch of stuff happening. Oh, let's stop the story. Mm. Go back 30 years and figure out why he's doing this in this moment in time. Mm. That kind of really interrupts the flow of a story for me. And yeah. it kind of just pulls me back out of a story I'm, I'm following for a while and going, okay, what is this exactly supposed to mean? Yeah. Um, there's a continuing motif in the film where he, I guess, um, uh, uh, he imagines that he's surrounded by water on the floor. It's almost like delusions. Yeah. It's, um, that, it's that weird kind of it. The the way that they bring it in, the first two or three times that they kind of reveal this water and him having this panic attack, kind of invasive memory thing. It's like okay, so this is a very important thing about why he is the way he is and what he's running away from and what why he's so focused on other things okay but there's never any genuine payoff on it when he finally gets into rehab and has to do all stuff it's kind of brushed away it's got to it doesn't really mention it again so i mean i guess yeah. the insinuation you know and then the first couple of times this happens we do no explanation we had to mm. wait mm. second or third time before we figure out what's going on yeah. the insinuation is it's a PTSD, maybe um, this panic attack flashback kind of thing to mm -hmm. when his brother drowned in a washing bath bucket or, or you know, a, a tub of mm -hmm. water when he was a small child. Yeah. And they don't really ever talk about that in any great length, apart from the fact that we're sort of going, you know, he, when he imagines he's surrounded by water, it freaks him out. Mm -hmm. Pardon me, that's him remembering what happened to his brother. And you're like, okay, mm -hmm. but. Just don't really quite you don't really connect the dots for me yeah. strongly enough you also don't really explain why what happened his brother happened to him like his yeah. brother slips over in this tub of water while piss farting around as a mm. kid and you know ray's watching him and he's still in his he can't get out of his bucket of water somehow yeah drowns in you know i don't know i mean the couple half a meter of water which can happen but yeah. like but ray just stands there and watches and we never get an explanation about what exactly why Ray didn't try and help his brother in that situation. I mean, you know, any number of possible reasons they were both children. But you're like, it really, it was, I mean, it was like just a really weird thing. And we never really came back to that again. It, yeah. I mean, it's like they have the throwaway line um, before that sequence of, yeah, it's never natural to see someone die. And it's like, okay, yeah. Sure. Okay, we're gonna see. We're gonna see the the young brother die, but you're not really as as the director. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Taylor Hackford, who also wrote and produced this. Um, 
he never puts like he doesn't even do like a slow zoom in on young Ray's face as he kind of realizes what's happening or anything to kind of give you this this feeling that he's stricken with panic and paralyzed by fear of what he's seen. He's just there and he just looks the kid just looks confused. He's like, well, yeah, I kind of would be too, because his brother it didn't look like he was particularly putting much effort to try and get out of the bucket. And so I was just kind of in my own head. I was going, Oh, okay. So he's fell and actually kind of fucked up his neck on the other so side. He banged his head or something. Yeah. It's but they never show any blood or anything like that. So like, next one, and you sort of come back to again, this whole thing of him being freaked out by water or these delusions or dreams of water being around him. That was waking dreams. If you're yeah. being surrounded by water, they don't really ever contribute to story. It's just sort of there, and, and they, they, there is a certain element of escalation to his reaction to each time it happens, but there's no explanation or no justification as to why it is happening. It's not necessarily always at these really heightened stress periods or anything like that, or these moments of emotional elevation to to trigger it. It's just random like the one where he's kind of trying to go into the the bathroom to get his first taste of drugs they just shut the door on him he turns around and then he suddenly feels it and it's like okay don't quite know why that triggered that and then it just the the reaction gets worse maybe maybe they're trying to suggest that the drugs that he's trying to use to escape these these thought processes are actually exacerbating the problem but it's just confusing which is which is tragically a shame for this and especially that element that feeling of confusion and narratives um muddiness i guess really comes in because you don't really feel and they don't make a good point of actually expressing how much time is going past as well like, I mean, you get a little bit of kind of the the only real iconography that you get to tell that time has passed is the phases that Ray Charles goes through musically. And if you don't know Ray Charles very clearly, it's not, it doesn't tell you very well as to, so like, okay, this is five years later or anything like that. It's... So the flow of the film doesn't quite work with those sort of weird flashbacks breaking it up. The the weird imagined panic attack thing so poorly explained and just sort of really not connecting to anything else in the story, particularly well for me, um, took me out of it. And it also just kind of chugged along. Mm. Um, it doesn't really – I guess there, there were moments of conflict or – your struggle, yeah. His struggle with drugs. He's, you know, on the usual beats. I guess that's the thing. It's the usual beats you find in every one of these films about uh, a, um, you know, successful musician. We saw it clearly in Walk the Line, or if you go back to Bohemian Rhapsody, similar sort of things. You know, they struggle, yeah. they make it, they consolidate, they fall, they come mm-hmm. back. Yeah, kind of the arc of these films, and it's you've seen one, you've seen most of them. Um, yeah. The only thing for me was like. Half of half a time through the film, I was going, "Oh, is that a Ray Charles song?" I had no idea. <laughs> um, yeah, I I didn't realize how much of Ray Charles music I really liked. I saw Ray Charles live once, believe it or not. 
Damn. In 2002, he played in Australia. It was quite an amusing... Well, I got free tickets because I knew somebody who could get free tickets. And um, I found out when I got to... It was at the Mind Music Bowl, for those who are in Victoria or have been to Melbourne, um, mm. which is an open-air sort of concert venue. Uh, and I found out the tickets I had were $300 tickets. Um, and I'm like, okay, cool. Because uh, they were quite close. And he came out and he played for an hour and then went off stage. And it's kind of like that moment in the film where, like, you have been entertained by the genius Ray Charles. And you're like, oh. and it was like, uh, yeah, well, he might be a fucking genius, mate, but he just played for an hour and he's got a fucking 50-year song catalogue you could pick from. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you can only play for an hour, I think you need to price accordingly, personally. Um, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't because I got my ticket for free, right? So I'd be like, I'm going to go to people and be going, I'd be a bit annoyed if I paid $300 for an hour, you know? Seem pretty cheap. I, I would love to earn three hundred dollars an hour. Trust me, Blake was earning more than three hundred bucks an hour. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> just, just you know, if if you you know if you pay me <laughs> like this show runs two hours, six hundred dollars, that'd be great. Here you go. Next week for six hundred dollars, George will simply sit here and acapella sing nothing but Ray Charles songs. Oh fucking hell! <laughs> no one wants that. Jesus. <laughs> six hundred bucks. That's what it costs. Let's, we should start a GoFundMe. We can see if we can do it for you. <laughs> Happy birthday, George. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and all you've got to do is learn the songs. You can even have the catalog up on your, uh, on your on your computer screen to go beautifully. Uh, <laughs> now let's talk a little bit. We've talked about the, 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 the film in general, and we've talked about um, uh, Jamie Foxx as Ray, and he really encapsulates it. Um, let's talk about the director, because I'm looking at his filmography now, and I don't know too much of his stuff. Like, no, and, and apparently the interesting thing, he wrote this, he optioned Ray Charles' story in 1997 or something. I mean, sitting around working on this thing for years and apparently no one wanted to back it. Yeah. Um, bit of a passion project for him. I mean, he's got, he's, he's been attached to, I've heard of some of his stuff. I mean, if you look at his directorial work, he directed um, An Officer and a Gentleman, which is a pretty well-known film. I, I haven't seen it, but I'm familiar yeah. with it. Um, Dolores Claiborne, I think, is a fairly well-known Stephen yeah. King adaptation. It's a Devil's Advocate. We talked about that about a, couple uh, a couple of months ago. Um, that's kind of an average film. Um, Proof of Life, I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, I don't think I've seen anything he's done subsequent to Ray. I did um, watch Parker, and that was very, very subpar. So it's – but it's you – know, he. this is clearly a passion project, and respect to him for finally getting that done after – very shy of 20 years of pushing for it but at the same time i wonder i wonder if it would have been better with another director on it because there's not really any directorial flair to it it's it it, it's kind of shot matter of factly um, well, if we look at a, 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 a very, very similar film, like I said, War for Lion came out 12 months later, mm-hmm. uh, did the Oscar thing for years as well. It was yep. directed by James Mangold, mm-hmm. uh, who is uh, probably a much better known director than mm-hmm. um, Taylor Hackford, probably his best known for things like, uh, he directed uh, Logan, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, he did, yeah. Uh, and he, Ford versus uh, Ferrari. Uh, some kind of sequel to something from like the 80s and 90s yeah. or something. Uh, Four versus Ferrari as well, which I think is a deeply overlooked film that he did. Yeah, um, good. really good film. Um, the Wolverine, we can just not talk about that one. Um, 
<laughs> but he also directed Three Time to Yuma remake, which was really good. It's solid, yeah. Um, mm. You're right. I mean, look, I mean, it's a biopic. You probably don't need a lot of flair. I mean, if we look at True. Bohemian Rhapsody, Dexter Fletcher took that over from whoever it was. It was um, was that Brian Singer, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Who was doing that one and directed yeah. a very competent, very very successful mm-hmm. um, biopic. Because if you got a catalog of songs like he did. Mm-hmm. And the catalogue of songs like Taylor Hackford, he does. If you put enough of them in, mm-hmm. then you know that's probably why people are coming. And you add in, you know, and a transcendent performance by the likes mm-hmm. of Jamie Fox. Yeah, um, you can see why that would probably look like enough. You know, um, yeah. I have to question a lot of his choices. I talked earlier about the the jumping back and forth. The other choice mm-hmm. that I've, the, I've uh, I think um, really kind of just confused me was the end. Because mm. it just is very abrupt. Yeah. Um, and I noticed one of the reviews on it's got a 73 Metascore. And one of the reviews from the AV Club, Nathan Rabin, mm. as Ray nears its abrupt ending, it veers into Camp Cillian is complete with a psychedelic freak out withdrawal sequence straight out of a Roger Corman LSD epic. And he yeah. it. It's on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Um the, the ending is bizarre. It just doesn't fit with the rest of the movie, which is, and there's there's an interesting little bit of trivia where um, uh, Taylor explains that he stopped the movie when he when Ray kicked the kicked the heroin because there was no conflict in the rest of his life. It was all success. It's like okay, cool, but at the same time. Did you did you need to go requiem for a dream light? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I would question that to add to to sum up Berlin's last you know last half of his fucking life mm. with a freaking one paragraph epilogue yeah. um, is a strange choice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it's it's a reasonable choice if you got you don't think there's really a whole lot of interesting stuff. I don't know. Mm. I mean, this is one of the good things about him. I didn't know a lot about Ray Charles's life. Just really. Music, really. Um, but you know, if there's really nothing else interesting to say about what happened to him in the last 20 years of his life, I mean, I think you're lacking imagination. Yeah. Um, personally, like surely something interesting happened. Yeah. Um, or at the very least, as you sort of say, if you have to end it at that point in time, then mm. find a better way, make it feel less abrupt. Um, yeah. To be fair, I guess I'm referring to it a lot because there's in my bookends mm. here, but walk the line. I don't remember what exactly what happens at the end of that film. But I it certainly don't recall it being anywhere near as abrupt or strange as this one. Yeah, it's um I can't I can't remember how that finishes either. I don't think I've actually watched it since since it was in the cinema. But See, by the way, this film came out 18 years ago. Have a fuck did 18 years take come between now and two thousand and four? Like someone was born when this film came out. I'm probably going to uni with them. Yeah, don't ask that question because it just will result in the universe imploding in on itself. <laughs> it's it's a scary world, man. What did uh, you make of um? What did you make of a supporting cast? It was an intri- you mentioned it earlier. It was a supporting cast of, hey, I know that guy. Yeah. So obviously, um, I guess second billing would be Kerry Washington, who plays Della B. Um, Ray Charles's second wife, the first wife never mentioned in this movie. And the fact that Ray had um, another child and family elsewhere, which I think is somewhat important considering, especially when he first starts getting success and he starts going on the road and he talks about how his father had multiple families all over the place. It's like, "Mm, 
okay. I would have liked to have actually known the fact that he had another wife, uh, well, a, a, a previous wife and child before this legendary love. Um, I think Kerry Washington did a fine job. It was perfectly serviceable, but at the same time, I I found the, the part underwritten because it's like, she goes through a lot of shit and she just kind of gets a little angry, nothing too egregious, and just takes it. And I feel like I'm repeating the same critics uh, criticism that I had for many other oh, this is the wife of a famous junkie musician or famous person. If you go to, again, sorry, back to Walk for Lion. Yeah. Um, the way they portrayed Johnny's first wife, they say show her his first wife or one of his first wives. I don't know if she was section number one. I don't know how many times he was married. But obviously one of the key relationships in that film was the Reese Witherspoon, um, Johnny Cash, I forget who mm -hmm. she played, um, uh, June, June Carter Cash. Yes. Um, but he, they did portray his first wife. It's mm. being kind of naggy and, you know, mm. um, handpecking and that kind of thing. And that film came in for a lot of criticism um, from his child, I think, of the daughter, I think, he had of, mm. out of that marriage and, and family of that first wife who said, no, you gave her a really short shrift in this one. Yeah. But basically, they, you could have written that part and just changed it to Kerry Washington here. And it's exactly the same thing. Oh, you're out on tour too much. Stop for drugs, you know. Yeah. Look after your son. Yeah, and I I get it. There's in a in a similar way that they largely protected the um the the public image of Queen for Bohemian Rhapsody because it wasn't all sunshine and roses between them all, and it wasn't just this one random guy that kind of split them apart for a while. Um I get that they want to kind of protect the legacy of the the artist and things like that, but at the same time it's like there is something to be said about accuracy and realism. Come on. I don't doubt this one. This doesn't feel like a, we've got to protect the mm. name. Um, mm. you're right, which I found one of the one of the, the most um, cloying parts of Bohemian Rhapsody was the fact that he is so um, scrubbed, mm. scrubbed clean, yeah. um, when we know it shouldn't be. And that's why they made that film and not the um, Sasha Baron Cohen one. Yes. Um, but this one doesn't feel scrubbed clean. I just feel like maybe they thought we haven't got time to tell that part of a story. Yeah. And the most important relationship in his life was with Della B. Yeah. So we'll tell that story and just yeah. don't mention the war. Um, yeah. No one's looking at this expecting, you know, you, you should, if you want to learn about Ray Charles, you read Wikipedia, I guess, not watch the yeah. film. But um, I, I didn't get it the sense it was a, because mm. he does look like a bastard quite a bit in parts yeah. of his film. Yeah. So um, I mean, it, it's, it's quite unapologetic in, in some cases. Um, but, Again, the the quality of those scenes really just rests on Jamie Foxx's performances. Like um, the the later scene where he gets the phone call and just hears that um, uh, Margie has uh, OD'd, and he just kind of walks away and then just cries in the doorway. Oh, lost lost Travis for a moment. No, I saw you. Oh, oh <laughs> he just didn't want to see me. No, sorry, oh. <laughs> it's fair. Um. I, I feel like I feel like Carrie did a, as good of a job as she could with the with the depth of the the depth of the character that they were willing to go into, and I just feel like this is um, 
all of the other side characters, like you think of uh, Regina King as Margie, you think of uh, Clifton Powell as Jeff, um, Harry Lennox as Joe, um, Bokeem uh, Robin as uh, Fathead in particular, those characters seem so seminal to the, the build and development and finality of who Ray Charles was, is, and became they're very 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 surface level like it tries supporting cast is very thinly written like they're there yeah. for five minutes gone they're yeah five minutes and then maybe they pop up again half an hour later and you're like that's the guy from before and he's still in the band i guess or yeah you, you know even relationships you feel like may be crucial like we yeah. meet he meets a young quincy jones early in the film and if you don't know who quincy jones is you're very young the yeah. guy's a music legend um yeah. he basically created michael jackson and stuff like that yeah, maybe it would have been better if he hadn't. But hey, um, <laughs> um, but you know, I thought, well, here we go, young Quincy. I, I don't know what kind of relationship back he had, but I think they had a close one, and they did work together a bit, from what I've read. Yeah. He's in it for there and gone, and then there's like maybe two or three three minute scenes that he's in it. And there's Emmett Erdogan. If you don't know who Emmett Erdogan is, Led Zeppelin have reformed once since they broke up in the early '80s, and that was for a tribute concert to his life. I'll tell you yeah. something about who he was. Mm-hmm. To Google, he, he, how incredibly important he was to the music biz in the 20th mm-hmm. century. But and you, you think maybe this will be the, you know, the, the, the relationship. It, it's, it's not like yeah. the rest of the cast just sort of float around. It float in and out of a story is required. Mm-hmm. And for the fact they've all got, there's a bunch of incredible actors in this film mm-hmm. who um, are doing their best with what they've got to work with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a shame that none of them. Really yeah. had the opportunity to do me talking Regina King here as Margie Hendricks. I found her role very confusing because she's like, you know, she was there and I'm like, in and out again. She was his mistress. Yeah. But- there, there, was that, there was that whole kind of extended montage sequence of uh, that was just played over one song where she's given the, um, the, the kind of the, the lead um, backing vocals thing. And it's kind of intercut with her in the various studios and fi- and uh, concerts, just looking angry at Ray. And then intercut with him uh, sleeping with other women and stuff. It's like, okay, I get it, but you're not really giving me a time period here. And you're just suddenly going, oh yes, this character that we've just introduced is now crazy bitch. It's and it really was. She, she, I think really, was, she was done dirty here. She did come across yeah. as crazy, obsessed. And but we got Clifton Brown, who mm. again, because I'm sorry, Clifton Powell as Jeff Brown. Mm. Um, again, you're gonna go. I don't know who that is. Look at his face. You've definitely seen him in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, particularly films like Friday and Rush Hour mm. from the mm-hmm. '90s and early 2000s. So um, we've got Harry Lennox. If you don't know who he is. You'll know his face. Um, the relationship between those two towards the end is sort of like. Clifton is there for so many important moments of his life. And then suddenly Harry Lennox Joe comes in and then it's all like, Oh yeah, he's been lying to me. He's been cheating. It's like, well, we didn't see any of that. Why, why should we care now? Uh, but Kim Woodbine as Fathead Newman, again, so a character who's with him for yeah. a significant period of his career. And he just sort of pops in and out as you need. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's the guy that started Ray on, on the heroin it's like okay that that seems like a key person that you should maybe spend a little bit of time no okay okay sure. we've got richard schiff who most people will probably best know from west wing 
um, as Jerry Wexler, again, a very, very important uh, seminal figure in 20th century um, popular music. Uh, mm-hmm. Terence Howard, David Crumholtz, mm-hmm. Wendell Pierce. Um, these are all people you're going, I, don't really, I think I know that name, but I don't really remember who that is. Um, Richard, is in on the, Richard is in on the chat. Uh, hi, Richard. He's just saying, um, you appear to have learned a lot about Ray Charles and his history through the film. Was he really such a bastard? He's one of those people who seems to be untouchable in music law due to no small part the people not actually... Um, knowing the backstory. Yes. Um, knowing the backstory. Yeah, it gives you a lot of kind of Cliff Notes version of his life. Um and it is interesting as r- realizing, oh, shit, this is Ray Charles song. This is a Ray Charles song. I know this song. I know this song. And um, it's, it is interesting. But at the same time, it doesn't – I feel like this movie should have narrowed its vision and just gone, okay, let's go for the, for the middle part of his life where everything – he's – Ray Charles is spinning so many plates. People – we can we can do a little bit of the introduction of who he is, but people know who Ray Charles is now. They don't know how he got there. So let's just focus on his time with Atlantic Records or something like that, just to cut it down so they can spend more time with these very, very important characters. But they didn't. I don't think he's that big of a bastard, but I mean, he was a heroin addict, so join the dots, right? They, they're yeah. not nice when they're on the gear. Yeah, and the 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 more telling part that again kind of gets brushed under is one of the final dramatic scenes between him and um, his wife uh, Della B, where she says, "Oh, you you've always had a problem," and she's talking about the relationship with Junior, and it's like, and this was before the drugs. This is you your music. Like, yeah, that's an interesting hook the obsession, the addiction to his music. And you get a little bit of that come through in the recording studio scenes where he's just listening and breaking things down, particularly where he sort of tells the backing uh, group to fuck off, uh, not in those words, but just get out and it wouldn't spit on them to put them out of uh, if they were on fire and stuff. And he just does all of that himself. It's like, yeah, that is a obsessive um, control problems that's an interesting take let's let's see more of that no okay you're not going to talk about that anymore it's it's a lot to cram in i, I know you mentioned it at the start when you're doing a biopic with someone who's like such a life cramming mm. all the interesting shit in can be a challenge so i think you need to be selective and yeah. maybe they were not selective enough for this film maybe. i don't know i'm not saying this is not catastrophically bad mm. it's strange it's long mm-hmm. it's kind of boring Mm-hmm. And it has an unbelievable central performance. Yes, absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I Maybe. think I have the keys this week. You do, you do, and you've got obviously we've talked we've talked about the the named cast on this one. It was, really, there was, it was so many places to go with this. You're right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of All the places, and a lot of places. Hopefully, we haven't been before. You know, um, we have been accused of being too blokey centric. And mm-hmm. so uh, I did consider taking us to Miss Congeniality too with Regina King. Um, but I figured, you know, the Miss Congeniality universe really doesn't make a lot of sense with starting this second one. You really do need to understand all the setup. And the, yeah. the intricacies of the first one. 
Um, but I thought about it. And, you know, just to keep the uh, keep it interesting, you know, we, we've had some fairly highly rated films of lately. Mm-hmm. I, I did consider taking us back to the early 2000s and uh, following Terrence Howard to the um, seminal music biopic of the early 2000s, which, of course, was Glitter. No, we we did that previously. We're not putting ourselves through that. <laughs> we are not doing glitter. I'm not doing glitter. I guarantee it. I'm just saying I could have. You know, um, we are going to have. Uh, we're going to. I'm going to keep it above the uh, you know above the waist here a little bit. I'm going to go to something that's um well respected. So a film I've not ever seen. I've been wanting to see it for a long time. He's never got around to it. We are going to follow Terence Howard. Now we're going to follow him to the 2013 Denny Villeneuve film Prisoners. Oh, okay. Prisoners. So Hugh Jackman, Jake Gyllenhaal, Viola Davis, um, Melissa Leo. So I Paul Dano, Maria Bello. I think mm-hmm. you'll be able to find your way out of that one. Yeah, uh, maybe. And, yeah, of course, the the great Denis Villeneuve. I think I can call him the great Denis Villeneuve now because the guy's made a lot of really great films. I think so. I think he's. I think he's. You know, justifiably gone, got that that staple now. I'm looking forward to this. I have. This is one of the very few um, Denis Villeneuve movies that I've not watched yet. So I don't think it's very well, but it's yeah. I'm. You know, it's got an eight point one on IMDb. It's got mm-hmm. a meta score of seventy. Um, we'll be able to check it out and make up our own mind. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I think you've been lurking this week in mm-hmm. the deep, dark depths of a streaming service um, that has uh, associated with an Apple brand of phone, a uh, fruit brand of phone. Yes, I, I, I have indeed. So um, I want to talk about a new mild obsession of mine because there's five episodes released out of six for a show called Shining Girls. Now, this is a it's based on a book that unfortunately is on Audible only in German. And the only thing I can say in German is Ich bin eine Binliner, which just means I am not a binliner. Oh, I can say Ich bin ein Berliner, which means I am not a donut. Ah, there we go. We can say that we are not things. <laughs> As long as the other word is similar to English. <laughs> um, this um, has gotten um, quite a stellar cast. It's got the Emmy-winning Elizabeth Moss. It has got Jamie Bell, who was um, probably still most famous for Billy Elliot, um, but he was in the... Alternate reality, Fantastic Four movie that we... I'm so sorry, Jamie. You deserve better than this. He has done some good performances. He's always willing to push into interesting areas, no matter what, whether it's King Kong. Snowpiercer as well. Snowpiercer was really good. Snowpiercer was good, yeah. Um, And I'm just going to bring up... um, Amy Brenneman's in there as well, for those of us from the 90s. You remember Amy Brenneman? Yeah. Yeah. the other main character in it is someone who I've never seen his work before. His name is Wagner Mura. Um, he plays Dan Velasquez. Um, and I'm just quickly looking at his stuff, and I do not know him at all. Apparently, he was in Narcos for a year uh, or he's two. Brazilian. Yeah. Um, but to give you the IMDb synopsis, 
Years after a brutal attack left her in a constantly shifting reality, Kirby learns that a recent murder is linked to her assault. She teams with a veteran reporter to understand her ever-changing present and comfort, uh, confront her past. That's an interesting way of describing this because the way that this is presented, it feels it's very much a serial killer miniseries. I don't know if there's going to be a second series or anything like that. It's based on a book, so I would assume that it'll finish where the book finishes. Um, but it's serial killer with a feel of something a little bit zodiacy because there is the mystery of the way that the serial killer attacks and leaves things inside the victims. And these things don't make any sense. Um, so Kirby is someone who has, as the synopsis said, she was attacked about six years prior to where we, when we meet her. And she is the only one of, as she learns over the course of the series, many women that have been attacked by this same serial killer over a unusually long span of time. These just lost women that just disappeared. As she investigates with um, uh, Wagner, Dan, she learns more about why she has these problems and breaks with reality, as well as we slowly but surely learn more about Jamie Bell's character, plays Harper Curtis. And I don't want to say too much because it would give away really brilliantly nuanced storytelling that is worthy. The performances are really excellent. The production value is really great. It is another quality Apple TV, uh, Apple Plus TV show um, with really great... The, um, Elizabeth Moss is producing this and she's directed one or two episodes she clearly has um, investment in this and it shows because she is much like with The Handmaid's Tale where she goes through a lot of shit and puts in one hell of a damn performance. She's putting in a really good performance here. Um, the interesting little nugget that I will put in there is there is time travel. There is yeah. a science fiction angle? Mildly, it's not about technology or anything like that. And um, there hasn't been the explanation as to why um, Jamie Bell's character is very, very creepily targeting these women. And like the first thing that we see in the first episode is a young version of Kirby sitting um, as a young girl sitting and just playing with like a makeshift um, kind of um, uh, flea circus that she made. And Jamie comes along and he's kind of limping and he sits down and he just starts talking to her and it's instantly creepy. And then the bee comes and he grabs a bee and plucks the, the feathers off of it. And he's just really fucking creepy all the time. And it just very much sets up. Okay. He has been watching each of his victims for a long fucking time. How the fuck is he exactly the same throughout it? So you already know that there's some form of time travel going into it, but why he's interested and willing to spend this much time and in interest in these seemingly random women 
has not yet been revealed. Um, and in episode five, we start to get some of the revelations on what's happening. And I will say that this feels a little bit like Stephen Kingy and the title itself, Shining Girls. It kind of makes me think a little bit of The Shining and yeah. how they kind of expanded that with um, what was the the movie that came out with Rebecca Ferguson and Young Dr. Sleep. Dr. Sleep, yeah. So it's a, it feels like it's kind of playing a little bit off of that sort of thing, which it's doing well. So I kind of I like that. Um, I think that you should check this out, at least the first episode, if you are interested you'll probably remain interested because it has kept that intrigue answer followed by a question going for the episodes. They're about, they're just shy of an hour long. I think it is. Um, but it is good quality. It's overall uncomplicated in spite of this time travel element. And because it does a really good job of putting you in the mindset of Kirby, who's trying to understand herself as well as the investigative reporter of Dan, it does a good job of giving you kind of checkpoints to kind of touch base with and say, oh, okay, I'm learning with these guys. And there is an unusual logic that sticks, that maintains. There, there seems to be a rule that's going on and they're not breaking those. I'm not confused by that. I'm just, I've accepted that and I'm taking it. So... I think, you've got, um, I think you've got another Apple TV show to talk about in a sec, but um, I think it's interesting. I just today, we just, I think today they've just released a new trailer for season three of um, For All Mankind. Mm. I don't know if you ever got around to watching it, but I, okay. I can't recommend it highly enough. The first two seasons were incredible. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think you're talking, you'll, you'll tell us about your other Apple TV show in a minute. Um, I talked a few weeks ago about how I think Severance might be the best new TV show we've had since Breaking Bad. Mm -hmm. um, and we had, we've, I think we both enjoyed Ted Lasso, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think Apple TV have the best lineup of original shows, period. Yeah, they've, they've kind of come in and just eaten Netflix's lunch. <laughs> you know, they, I mean, they, Netflix are in trouble at the moment. They're, not, yeah. they're losing all those subscribers. They're talking about Adam adding commercial supported tiers i heard on john oliver the other night they satirically called them blockbuster 2.0 um i'm like mm, i could be um so and i kind of looking i was actually just while you're talking there i was having a look going um I, I do want to talk i want to do i'd like to see that mm. i'm like um you're going how much does it cost to subscribe to apple tv per month and you're like I'm looking at this going, eh, can, I, can I smash it all in a free trial? Probably not. Um, I, I look at this and go, I feel like I could cancel my Netflix subscription and pay for this instead. Um, it doesn't look like there's the breadth of content here in terms of not as much as you get on Netflix, but yeah, it sounds like it's more about quality rather than um, yeah. considering the amount of times you, you stop on Netflix and you're like, uh, I guess I'll watch Rick and Morty again. Um yeah, it it feels that's that's the the big difference between the two of them is it feels like once a month or once every two months there's an interesting new show that is coming out on Apple TV, but it feels like the last interesting show on Netflix to come out 
Witcher 2 or season 2? Although a lot of people like Bridgerton. Yeah. It's sort of yeah. more of a soap opery for me, but you know, yeah. um, I'm, look, I'm sure there's stuff out there that people enjoy about Netflix. It's just for me personally, I found them lacking for a while now in the sense mm-hmm. that they seem to produce a lot of very low quality content. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we've, I mean, I won't dwell on this, we did this last week, but um, I think Apple and, well, to a lesser extent, but also mainly Disney have shown it isn't necessarily about quantity. It's about, you know, big IPs that people want to watch. And yeah. it's Apple are playing in a field where, where we can't, we don't have Star Wars, we don't have Marvel, yeah. we don't have, you know, the Disney back catalog. But what we do have is we can go out and find, I assume, and throw money at people who are yeah. disgustingly talented and go, do whatever you want, make me a show. That's and it, it sounds like there's a lot of stars out there, like Elizabeth Moss, like Ben Stiller. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Momoa, he had that C show that was on there, you know. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Aniston on the morning show. Like these people mm-hmm. want to work on original and interesting content that they'll have creative control over. And that maybe is where Apple's winning. But yeah, I'm his back catalog. I'm going to I think I, I think I want to subscribe to this. I don't want to give Apple any money, but you know, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, if you want to see some of this stuff, yeah, you know. So I want to hear about Slow Horses, which I think is the other yeah. Apple show you've been watching. Yes. So Slow Horses stars one of my favorite, one of our favorite actors, Gary Oldman. And this is an interesting show. I'm only two episodes into the um, the first season. Um, I don't know if it's based off of anything like pre- pre-existing stuff. I think it is. I think it feels, I've what I've heard it's a very got a Tinker Tailor sort of spiry kind of feel to it, right? It's got that element. Definitely. And having Gary Oldman in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and this, yes, there is that familiarity, shall we say. It is but, based on a book by Scott Mick Heron, by the way. Sorry to interrupt you. Okay, no, no, no. The <laughs> the similarities between Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and how dour and genuine that movie was for the spy industry is completely thrown out of the window with the first time you meet Gary Oldman's character <laughs> because he's just sitting there. I, think he, I can't, can't remember if he's, if he's just stretched out or if he's asleep and he just lets rip with a fart. <laughs> and so the, the main premise of this is it's, it follows a group of fuck-ups from the secret agent society in the UK who fuck up so much, they get transferred from, um, I can't remember what they actually call it, but essentially special branch. And they go to a a place that is run by Gary Oldman's character called Slough House. And it's called Slough House because it's so far away from the beating heart of British intelligence, it might as well be in Slough. Where where is Slough? It's a long way from London. (laughs) And as the name suggests, no one really wants to go to Slough. <laughs> I'd like to apologise to all our loyal listeners mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. Slough. Yes. If there are, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> um, but it also, um, there's, there's an unusual level of genuine nature to it. Um, as the um, IMDb blurb says, it follows a team of British agents who serve as a dumping ground department of MI5 due to their career-ending mistakes. 
And we see one such career-ending mistake with um, actor James Loudon playing River Cartwright. Um, he's on a mission, and he is uh, doing surveillance of someone that, as the, the events unfurl, um, it's apparently a bomber that is going to try and set off a bomb somewhere, either in the train station or the airport or something like that. And there's a fuck up. Someone made a fuck up and River takes the, um, it bears the brunt of it because he thought he was looking for an Asian guy with um, a white shirt and blue jacket, but it was a blue shirt and white jacket. So he'd been surveilling the wrong person. And it was a test program. It reveals that it's a test program in the first episode. But the um, equivalent, the result of that is that he gets bumped off to Slough House. And it's only because of his grandfather cameoed first time in um, episode two, Jonathan Price, legendary Jonathan Price, um, basically has apparently come in and saved his hide. The other big name that I want to call out for this show as well is Kristen Scott Thomas, who is fucking brilliant. Um, she basically is um, second desk is what her official title is for MI5. She seems to be the bird running the nest, shall we say. Um, at the moment, the story is still building, but there's been a kidnapping of, um, of a Muslim guy by British radicals. And they've sort of like posted this video online that they're going to behead this guy. And so like Britain for British people and all of that stuff, which is interesting stuff. Is it set the present day? It is set present day. Yes. And, but it's, it's not your typical spy movie at all. You know, we see a uh, river Cartwright. Um, he's like the, the chiseled, handsome agent that can run and he can take people down. And things like that. the next time we see him, he's literally going through trash, trying to find clues. And um, Gary Oldman's character, Jackson Lamb, he basically every opportunity he gets, he fucking destroys every person that is there because the I, his idea is I want to make your life so fucking miserable that you quit and I don't have to deal with you anymore. I don't want you hanging around. And River Cartwright is still very much hung up on the fact that he got bumped out of MI5 and he he's looking for a way to get out of Slough House. This is interesting. I'm really curious how it's developing because it's an unusual balance of comedy with serious social commentary for Britain, especially considering all the stuff that I hear my friends and family talking about and how things and how attitudes, social attitudes are changing over there. Well, oh, okay. Interesting. I'm impressed that they're willing to show that kind of thing in Western TV because it does not paint Britain in a in a friendly light let's just say that and i like the fact that england is shown to be a fucking arsehole because they are <laughs> tell us what you really think i don't like england <laughs> it, it kind of has a a um from what you're talking it sounds like it almost has a comedic vibe is there a, a comic angle as well as a social that, that feel to it it's that that kind of balance of 
it's serious and stupid at the same time. Like there are a couple of fart jokes throughout it, but they're not the Mike Myers kind of fart joke. It's just because farts are funny and because Jackson Lamb is hell bent on making everyone's life a living fucking hell. It's really interesting. It's I, I, I can't wait to get off the podcast so I can watch more because I think I think the first three episodes are up now. But um, yeah. that's a, it's a, another strong recommendation for Apple TV. Yeah. There. So yeah, definitely. Um, it's I mean it's just it's it's interesting that a, a latecomer to the market because they really did yeah. you know people don't think about it you know you get it for free with mm. your iPhone for a couple of months um yeah. Uh, and by the way, there are four episodes up now on um, potentially. Uh, no, they're all up. <gasps> Episode yeah. six came out April 29th. I'm just looking at the Apple TV page here. So even better. Got the whole series to work through there by the looks of things. So um, more binging for you. And I would mm. just like to give a quick shout out, though, mm. because uh, I, I don't want people to, you know, uh, yeah, think we're, we're down on their hometown. And a an un warranted slur a slur against the people of slough uh mm-hmm. i'd just like to give a quick shout out to the slough town rebels who had a uh who are coming along very nicely in the uh i think it's in the national league south sixth division coming in in a very comfortable 13th place with you know 12 wins from 40 games you know they're look they're a they're right up there with, you know, luminaries like Hunger for Town, Dulwich Hamlet. Um, you know, they are a fair way behind the leaders of Mates and United and Dorking Wanderers, but isn't everybody struggling when compared to the Dorking Wanderers? I know I am. So, you know, <laughs> shout out to the Slough Town Rebels. No. <laughs> the new official football club of the Armchair Producers. How dare you, sir? How dare you turn your back on Long Melford? What was the other one? It was the, the surgeons. It was the... Um, yeah, Millwall. Millwall. Wow. I mean, <laughs> if I, if you don't want to cross Millwall. We'll have... No, you don't want to cross Millwall surgeons. That's... We will be... Um, uh, Millwall had a loss on the weekend, so they can, you know, piss off. Um, <laughs> one loss and they're out of my heart forever. It, you know, it's, it's a cruel world, but, you know, you should learn that now, Millwall. You really should. Um, that's it. That concludes the sporting element of a show because mm, you know, that's what we're all about. And I think it's time for our um, our sponsor. Who are our sponsors today? Sponsors this week will be crossing to um, our sponsors. We're doing some public service announcements this week. We'll be um, okay. Some educational stuff. Educational okay. stuff. I think is the is in order this week. Um, I'm and yes, to educational if it's Muppets. So there's no Muppets involved. Well, I mean, you know. None of the fabric kind, anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just said a quick check. The satellite is ready, and we'll be crossing oh, live by satellite to uh, Finland <laughs> this week. So um, that's going to be exciting. Um, Don't forget to use hashtag no discount at checkout at checkout for so, any Finland properties. First things first. Mm-hmm. And this week, we're going to learn about something very important that isn't discussed enough in society, I think, and that is how to open a door. <laughs> Maestro.
Muuten kesken kaiken yhteiskunnalla on sinulle asiaa. Tiesitkö, että joka kolmas suomalainen avaa jatkuvasti oven väärin? Älä ole huono oven avaaja, sillä tuskin mikään on niin helppoa kuin oven avaaminen. Oven avaamisen nyrkkisääntö on, että ovi avataan aina samalla tavalla. On tärkeää oppia kunnolla perusoven avaus. Ovea lähestytään rauhallisesti. Kolme metriä ennen avattavaa ovea askeleet on sovitettava siten, että vasen jalka osuu oven karmin eteen noin viiden sentin päähän kynnyksestä. Oikea jalka jää taakse. Rytmisesti onnistuneen ovenavauksen perusedellytys on, että paino lepää vasemmalla jalalla. Asentonne on oikea, jos pystytte vaivattomasti nostamaan oikean jalan ilmaan ja pyörittämään sitä nilkan ympäri kaatumatta. Ojennatte nyt vasemman käden kohti kahvaa painon siirtyessä eteenpäin. Tämän liikkeen ansiosta paino siirtyy myös vasemmalle kädelle, joka ikään kuin itsestään painaa kahvan alas. Syntyneestä rausta sujautatte vapautuneen oikean jalan sisään, pyörähtäen sen varassa ympäri, kääntäen rintamasuuntanne tulosuuntaan, samalla irroittain otteenne oven kahvasta, mutta samalla tarttuen oikealla kädellä kahvaan, siirtäen samalla painonne oikealle. Ovi sulkeutuu. Näin olette oppineet avaamaan ja sulkemaan oven, joka aukeaa itsestänne poispäin. Ovethan aukeavat usein myös itseenne päin. On syytä muistaa, että me opetimme tällä kerralla perusavauksen ainoastaan sellaisessa tilanteessa, jossa ovi aukeaa oikeasta reunasta työntäen. Tätä nyt opeteltua menetelmää ei pidä soveltaa muunlaisten ovien avaamiseen tai jäätte ulkopuolelle. Nykynuorison lempitansseja ovat disco, jytä ja biittanssit, mitkä tuottavat erikoisesti vaikeuksia aikuisille, johtuen tästä liikkeestä. Tässä täytyy päästä oikeaan disco-fiilinkiin, että tämä onnistuu. Polvet siis menevät eteenpäin, lantia menee taakse ja suoraksi, kädet lyövät alaspäin ja hieman eteen, hartiat liikkuu ja pää liikkuu. Tämä on siis tärkein perusliike diskotanssissa. Seuraava on vasenjalka sivulle. Yksi, oikea yhteen kaksi. Oikea sivulle kolme, neljä. Yksi, kaksi, kolme, neljä. Nostamme reilusti polvia. Nostamme reilusti polvia. There you go. Um, short, quick lesson there. I think the important story there was about how to open a door. I think that that would have been really useful for the actors in um, Edward D. Wood Jr.'s movies to have known. If only they spoke Finnish, that's the real tragedy of the whole situation. Um... There we go, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Make sure you learn Finnish for all your safety needs. So, look, you know, now you know how to open the door. Yeah. You're welcome, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> and everyone else in between on the side, because, you know, who knows when you're going to come up against a door? Now, I believe there was a second part of it opening doors that really you, you don't you, you pull, which is a completely different skill set. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, and it's Don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, doors can open in different ways, in and out, or in and out. Doors, the unspoken menace. They, they are the menace of all Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. They are the menace of our society. <laughs> How is your Dungeons and Dragons campaign going? 
I uh, haven't had a chance to play for a long time. I've been exhausted from work and COVID and all of that sort of stuff. So basically, generic excuse, generic excuse, generic excuse. I'll get round to it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, having COVID's a thing. Yeah, um, but if if I really cared about D and D, I wouldn't let it stop me. No, well, I say give yourself a break. Oh, I'm no good at that. No, well, few are. We're all terrible at that. But, you know, that doesn't stop Hollywood, though. I'm That's true. Talk a little about an actual Hollywood production, a new one that uh, <gasps> landed uh, about a month and a half ago. I think it came out, mm. but it's finally out and about on some mm. of your streaming services if you're American. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is The Lost City, a new the film uh, starring Sandra Bullock, Channing Tatum, and Daniel Radcliffe. He's getting into some interesting things right now, Daniel. I was talking about this while I was watching it. But, um, so, like, you know, he's kind of got that real luxury spot for him in the sense, like, I assume, obviously, mm. I don't know him. <laughs> um, I assume he saved his money well from his Harry Potter films, and I assume he was paid extremely well for those Potter films as they went along. Um, yeah. And I don't know if he still makes money off those films or not. Um, I'd imagine so I, at some I, point. Wouldn't be surprised, but like obviously he's done well out of those films and has the luxury now of basically going, I'm set. You yeah. know, I've got the mansion, I've got the yacht, I've <laughs> got the fancy car. <laughs> if somebody comes to me and goes, Do you want to play Weird Al in the film? You go, Fuck yeah, I want to play Weird Al in the film. He says, mm -hmm. I don't think he has any great desire to be, and if he's ever going to be, you know, Leo DiCaprio mm -hmm. level leading man, that, you know, he pops up in films that he maybe he has fun with or he just, you know, yeah. finds interesting. And I think that's a great freedom for a potential, for a real yeah, creative like that. Um, but this is a, this is an interesting film. It's, um, when you start watching it, you're like, I've seen this film before and I enjoyed it last time I saw it when it was called Romancing the Stone. I was going to say. Mm -hmm. um, which is, this, this is basically a soft remake of Romancing with Stone. I don't know who wrote that, but I hope they sued them and got paid because <laughs> it's not very original. Okay. So, a reclusive romance novelist on a book tour with her cover model gets swept up in a kidnapping attempt that lands them both in a cutthroat jungle adventure. Yep, so definitely have, familiar. Sorry? Definitely familiar. Uh, Sandra Bullock plays the character of Loretta Sage. Uh, she is a very famous um, romance novelist who doesn't really think too much of her genre. She was trained to be a, an archaeologist or something like that uh, when she was younger, but, you know, fell into writing romance novels and has made a lot of money in it while not necessarily having a great deal of respect for her fan base or what she produces. She's now just written and uh, delivered a fairly lackluster last book in a series involving the character, uh, her main character, who uh, Dax or Dash, Dash is his name, the Dash. <laughs> and uh, Channing Tatum has been kind of the Fabio-esque sort of uh, book uh, cover model for all her books and has famously became associated as Dash, even though he, you know, the character is not based on him in any way, shape, or form. He has no input into the books other than having his shirt off on the cover. Um, pretty much. Um, so they, Loretta, and he played Alan, is his, that was his character's name, Alan something or other. Um, and uh, they don't get along, I think is the um, Alan slash Dash. Yeah. So Alan is his actual, actual model's name, Dash is the character's name in the book. 
Um, they don't necessarily get along, and they sort of thrown together on this book tour to try and make it more interesting because her uh, manager, played by Divine Joy Randolph, who plays Beth, thinks mm-hmm. that maybe, you know, it'd be a little bit more interesting for the audience if, you know, something apart from uh, just Loretta is on stage. Mm-hmm. She usually gets into you know, nitty-gritty detail of um, the, uh, the, the academia and give academic answers to questions about her books. Her books all have a... Um, sort of connection to sort of, you know, ancient history, sort of Tomb Raider-y kind of books, you know, exploring Aztec temples, okay. and, you know, that kind of thing. And that's sort of kind of drawing on her background in, uh, you know, in history and archaeology and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she is kidnapped from her book launch by uh, Daniel Radcliffe's goons mm-hmm. um, because apparently she's one of the few people in the world, despite actually not being, a fully trained, you know, archaeologist or whatever you want to call it, who any person has the ability to read these particular runes, which he thinks will lead him to a particularly valuable uh, artifact on this island. And okay. he uh, wants her to de- decipher um, some of the uh, cuneiform hieroglyphic type things mm-hmm. on the island to help him find the treasure. Okay. That's uh, And so Daniel Radcliffe plays... Abigail Fairfax, who's sort of your stereo, now becoming your fairly fairly stereotypical, nerdy, evil tech billionaire kind of person. Okay. Um, he plays like with Lex Luthor. He would have made a far better Lex Luthor than he would actually an interesting one. But then again, he'd have it very tongue in cheek, I think. So mm. I don't think he, he does a comedic villain well. I don't know if he'd do a menacing villain particularly yeah. well. Um, the. Uh, the Beth and Alan realize she's being kidnapped, and so they hire through. <laughs> Alan knows a guy who used to be a military special forces guy, because they were in a yoga class together or something, and he hires him to uh, try and uh, rescue Loretta, and that, that is the character of Jack Trainer, played by Brad Pitt. Okay. Um, while Brad Pitt's on screen, this film is very very enjoyable. Okay. So if you were going to remake Romancing the Stone, Brad Pitt would have been a fantastic choice for Michael mm-hmm. Douglas's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not the character he plays. So he is his character. It's been a very long time since I've seen Romancing the Stone, but mm. um, I don't think his character kind of exists in that story. Um, let's just say it's probably a glorified cameo, really, for Brad. But okay. he's so charismatic and so okay. funny. And so enjoyable to watch. You're so engaged watching the film while he's in it. The fact he's not in it very long means you're kind of like, oh, oh, he's gone. Ah, oh, just kind of enjoying that. Uh, is he going to come back? No, no, no he's not. He's not coming back. Um, okay, so we just get stuck with uh, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum for the rest of the film. Mm-hmm. All right, um, and they don't work very well off of each other at all. Mm. There's basically it's interesting. We talked last week about my fake fiance. Now, people are wondering where the fuck are you going with that? Um, <laughs> but now it is a ter- an objectively terrible film. Yeah, you know, badly written, it's badly made, badly directed, but it somehow worked because you had two stars with the most incredible chemistry, bouncing zingers. It really poorly written zingers at that, but they were so good at that chemistry to get working together and zingering, zinging each other it just somehow worked and actually became enjoyable to watch and actually got some laughs. Hmm. This is the opposite. 
you got two big Hollywood stars who have no chemistry together, no business being on screen together, hmm. um, and doing different kind of comedy to what kind of comedy they probably do best. Hmm. Um, and it just, it, even though I don't know this is particularly well written, the you know the content should probably work a lot better than it does. Mm. It just falls flat half the time because you don't believe that these people get along. Mm. Uh, you don't really care about them. I mean, there's also, again, going back to Romancing the Stone, uh, I think if I recall correctly, a lot of the comedy in that film came from the odd couple conflicts, you know, yes. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. They didn't get along. They were kind mm. of arguing and nipping at each other and, you know, um, really rubbing each other the wrong way for probably the whole film, if I recall correctly, which pretty much. is pretty formulaic, really. You know, yeah. like, of course, they're going to get together at the end. Or if you think of um, um, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, you know, um, the second of the three films, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Harrison Ford and <laughs> Steven Spielberg's future wife, I forget her name. Um, uh, but they, that's half the fun of that film is despite the kind of the, you know, overt racism throughout the film. Uh, if you can ignore the racism, you just put that to one side. Um, I feel like that should be some right-wing politician's tagline. If you just ignore the racism, he's a pretty good bloke, you know. Um, um, but look, I don't think that film was trying to be offensive. It was just a different time, I guess, the 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, you wouldn't get anywhere near away with that these days. Um, but that uh, Charlie's a Charlie. I can't forget the character's name. Um, but uh, she and Indy, they just they rub each other the wrong way yeah. most of the way through the film. They don't like each other very much. And they don't really. Really, They've just been lumped together. Uh, Willie and uh, Indy have been lumped together and they got to get through this adventure together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's fun because yeah. despite the fact that I don't think I've ever seen her in anything, Kate, Kate Capshaw, if I'm not mistaken, the actress's yeah. name. I don't think I ever saw her in ever, anything ever again. But it, it's fun. It, mm. And it works. These two characters don't have that. They have a conflict starts. Okay, we don't like each other. Mm. Yeah, I'm rescuing you from evil billionaire. Oh, thank you. And, you know, the aggro between the two of them basically dissipates almost immediately. So there goes the tension. I mean, they're not exactly shagging day one, but they're also not in great conflict. And they sort of start working. Oh, okay, well, we're just going to have to work together to get off this island, yada, yada, yada. And you're like, that's not very funny or entertaining. You know, you got to find a comedy somewhere else now because that comedy that comes from them, you know, Oh my god, he saw me naked. I hate this guy, you know, like or something like that. I'm not saying it yeah. so it should have been in the film, but like, you know, um, or I think of that film again in Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, where she gets sprayed with the elephant and stuff like that, and you know, she's covering herself up, and you know, it's yeah, classic comic comedic spots, mm-hmm. but maybe you do it without the creepy staring at the naked person thing anymore. But um yeah. none of that's there. None of that tension's there. So they've got no chemistry, they've got mm-hmm. no tension. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard to care about that relationship then. And we all know how it's going to end up because, of course, of course we do. Um, the only really entertaining character in the film, I mean, Daniel Radcliffe chooses scenery and does the best he can, and he's kind of mm-hmm. fun. Beth Hatton, that divine Joy Randolph, is hilarious. She has all the best lines. Mm-hmm. She has an incredible speech to some police where she lands on 
the island that they're uh, that they're being held hostage on, and she tries to talk to police into keeping the police station open um, to, to go and search for her friends. That's actually very funny and very unusual and very well written, and okay. kind of like. Did the rest of her writers write this, or did she just like ad-lib this? Because she's got <laughs> a lot of charisma, and I think she's going to be a big star, or mm-hmm. she'll go a lot further. And I think you'll see her name around the place. But because mm-hmm. the screenplay is not good, I mean, this is written by two guys, mm-hmm. so directed by two guys, Aaron and Adam Nee, who I've never heard of before. Nope. They've basically never done anything before. Um, I think it's their first big, their first big thing. They're both also credited. As writers, along with a guy named Oren Uziel. Okay. Um, again, not a name that rings off a bell. He uh, wrote uh, <sighs> The Cloverfield Paradox. Uh, he also wrote Mortal Kombat last year, which mm. Moments and Escape Room Tournament of Champions, which I have not seen. I think that's a sequel to, to one. I, I don't know where, how it did, though. He wrote the sequel to 2221 Jump Street as well. I didn't see those That'll films. probably be the connection then, because that's the guessing. same vehicle. So there's also uh, two other writers, Dana Fox, who, again, is not a name that jumps off the screen, but who, how often do we know writers? Mm. Uh, she wrote Cruella, How to Be Single, Couples Retreat. I heard Cruella was kind of good. I don't know about the rest mm-hmm. of them. Okay. Uh, and the story credit is by a guy named Seth Gordon. So it's a real cast of thousands. Seth Gordon... Uh, did films like Pixels, uh, okay. I think, um, um, uh, Freakonomics, King of Kong, which is a documentary, which is actually a really yeah. good documentary, but yeah. um, I don't know how you write a documentary, <laughs> but he's credited as the writer. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of nobodies already going to say, I've never written a film, but these people are nobodies really in Hollywood, though. They've mm. not done a lot of impressive work before, yeah. Um, and this is not something I would think you'd say that is impressive work. It's long. It feels mm-hmm. a lot longer than an hour, 52 minutes. It's probably 20 minutes too long. Okay. Um, you probably want to get in and out in 90 minutes of a film like this before you notice there's no substance to it. Yeah. Um, it's really disappointing. It's really disappointing, actually, because I was really in the mood for a film that's just like action-adventure comedy kind of thing was not based on a pre-existing ip not part of a franchise just a fun adventure film a bit a little bit like you know i mean this is the classic you know these are the films you and i grew up with mm-hmm. and we grew up with them because george lucas grew up with them and spielberg mm-hmm. grew up with his mm-hmm. 50s matinee you know tarzan films and stuff like that it's a classic genre mm-hmm. and they've done a really really poor job in updating it so you talked about a little bit about Sandra Bullock and Daniel Radcliffe and Brad Pitt. You haven't really said anything about Channing Tatum. From the trailer for this movie, I was just the you, they they sell the idea of the dumb model be, uh, rising up to be the action star. I was expecting um, a performance almost akin to Chris Hemsworth in Ghostbusters: Answer the Call, where he's just really just like Derek Zoolander levels of dumb model is it is it like that or is it it's not quite that dumb I mean he's okay. pretty dumb and actually it's interesting that we um Michelle my partner and I who we watched this on Saturday night mm. and we had that conversation afterwards I'm like he's I think he's going for Hemsworth level comedy mm. um 
And I guess Tang Tatum can do comedy, I guess. I don't yeah. know that I ever saw the Jump Street films, but I know they were very well, very successful, and people liked them a lot. Um, I just don't think he has the charisma of Hemsworth. Mm. I don't think he has the comic timing of Hemsworth, and I don't think he does action as good as Hemsworth does. Mm. What he does do, which Hemsworth doesn't do well, is, is dance. Like, I don't think you know this. He actually used to be a dancer. Like Magic Mike was based on his experiences as an exotic dancer. Okay. Um, I didn't realize this, but one of his first credits on IMDb, I think it might be his first, is um, the uh, Ricky Martin film clip, She Bangs. Um, <laughs> don't quote me. It's one of the Ricky Martin film because we actually watched it afterwards to see if we could spot him. You can't. But uh, he was a background dancer in that. Then, of course, he was in the Step Up films with Julia Stiles. Um, yeah. Um, so not saying he can't act. And he's done decent work in the past. Um, interestingly, they wanted Ryan Reynolds for this role, not him. That would have been a return for, for that duo. They had yeah, the, they were the, him the proposal, the yeah. Proposal, yeah. Um, but they couldn't nail it down. And I found myself going, yeah, I could absolutely see Ryan Reynolds pulling this off so much better mm. than, than, um, than Channing Tatum did. I, I don't know what to think of Channing Tatum. It's been a strange career you know he kind of hit that peak there for a while he was doing a lot of stuff but yeah i don't remember the last big film he did that was any good mm. um and that was maybe uh the hateful eight and he only had i think he said anything in hateful eight um uh yeah he's okay in this i think he does what he has to do yeah um i just said i don't think he or sandra bullock are necessarily to blame for the fact that this film is kind of planned and boring and mm. dull and stilted. Um, it's just that I think they're miscast. Okay. You, maybe you could have one but not the other, but I just don't know that they, they don't work well together for me. Mm -hmm. I don't think, as I said, there's no chemistry between the two of them. Yeah. You don't get that vibe, and it's it's an intangible. It's difficult Ooh. to... Was that intentional, mentioning vibe and chemistry? Jeff Goldblum. You're giving me far too much credit. <laughs> um, I, I just don't know that they work well together and mm. they try the best they can, but I, I feel like Chain Tatum, you, you know it was written by Ryan for Reynolds, Reynolds right, so written for Ryan Reynolds. You're kind of like, yeah, okay. Mm. That makes a lot more sense and they just couldn't get him, so mm. they got the next best guy, you know. Mm -hmm. He's Mexican non-union equivalent. Um, <laughs> um <laughs> Senior Tatum, um, and it just didn't quite land. Uh, that's a shame. That's a shame. It's unfortunately, I can't recommend it really. Look, mm. it's not a lot of fun. It's pretty boring. Okay. That's a shame. That's a shame. But uh, it's just given the, the trailer, I feel like, like a lot of comedies now. All the good stuff is in the trailer, and then the rest is like, okay, this is just getting me to the next joke that I've already actually seen in two and a half minutes. I was really in the mood for this as well. So, I mean, mm. I just, it, it really, it had a great opportunity. It was the right film at the right time. It just, they didn't nail it. And it's that's what you get when you hire a bunch of no-name hacks, apparently. Yeah, that's a shame. I believe, do not quote me on this, but I think Aaron and Adam Nee. If I remember correctly, I think they're the guys who are good currently have picked up the ball and uh, we are stuck with Mark. Yeah, they are they are currently 
apparently down to direct the Masters of the Universe He-Man film. Ooh. Um, there is nothing in this film that makes me go, oh, yeah. I can see why they'd be chosen for that. I mean, I give, give me the Dolph Lundgren version. It's my vibe right now on that. And I grew up with He-Man, so I'd be very no curious. be able to beat Frank Langella as Skeletor. Sorry? No one's going to be able to beat Frank Langella as Skeletor, Skeletor right? no. And I think he got me too recently, Frank, so... Yeah. I don't I know so. if he's going to get a cameo. Sorry, Cat mm. Frank. Mm. That's what you get for harassing people on set. What the pity. <laughs> now, before we go on to your Star Trek stuff for the final part of this, I want to just talk a little bit about my favourite movie of the year, of the last few years, and I'm coming off of the success of uh, The Unbearable Weight of Immeasurable Talent, I'm talking about everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm hearing very good things about this film. This is phenomenal. Um, so, going on here, let's see what IMDb has as the, the blurb. An aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connecting with the lives she could have led. Which is basically a good way of summing this up. And it's funny that this movie is coming out now when Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness comes out. Because in Doctor Strange, we talked about it last week. There's not actually much in the way of madness in the multiverse. And uniqueness in the multiverse now this is definitely better in every way i went to go and see it with good friend of the show krista uh, we went to go and see it at the cinema nova and that is fast becoming the the place where i just watch my favorite movie of the year <laughs> it's a great um, little cinema it's one of my favorites mm, it's absolutely wonderful it stars michelle yell the incomparable michelle yell and it has a face in it that we sort of teased with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Ke Hui Kwan, who played Short Round and Data in The Goonies. This is one of his first acting jobs in many, many years. He was doing a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of stunt work, second-unit director stuff, and he's back. Um, and it also has one of the true legends of cinema, James Hong. Now, anyone who doesn't know who James Hong is, you hear his voice and you instantly know his voice. He is Poe's father in the Kung Fu Panda movies. He is Lo Pan in Big Trouble in Little China. He is in so many movies. You know him, you love him straight away. You've got a fond memory of one of his characters. This is how you do multiversal jumping around and this is the funniest movie I have seen in years. The cinema, everyone in the cinema was laughing out loud so often. It has got some of the best, most inventive action sequences. It is also such a simple core crux story that just expands. And every time you think about it, you suddenly realize, oh shit, they were doing something else with that. And that was, that was amazing. And that was informing like, it not only has it got those three great actors, it has got one of my favorite aging actresses, Jamie Lee Curtis. Now she was great in Knives Out. And this, she's even better. 
and she plays um, an IRS agent and she's auditing uh, Michelle Yao's Evelyn Wang and her, her, her laundromat business. And what she does with this character and the way that you see her in different universes when you jump th- from one to another to another, it is... Jamie Lee Curtis is just so good. She is a genuine global treasure that we need to protect in every way, shape, and form because she's just having so much fun. Oh, my God. So this movie has the best writing that I have experienced in probably a decade or more because... It sets up so much stuff, so many of the jokes and so many of the outcomes are funny when they first plant the seed. And then when they come back, it's incredible. Like um, in the scene, one of the early scenes, we see the the Wang family in, talking with um, Jamie Lee Curtis's um, Deirdre at the IRS thing. And Deirdre's sort of like, ah, you don't get all of these. And she points to these um, trophies behind her that look just like butt plugs. (laughs) You don't get all of these without being amazing at your job. And it's just funny because it it is unequivocally a butt plug trophy. And that's just funny. And the way that it comes back later on in the movie, it's gold. It is genuine gold. It is so heartfelt and beautiful. The the resolution of the story is somewhat you you know that it's gonna that's how it's gonna end, but the journey is so good. And I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to spoil it. I just want people to watch it because it is amazing and it's an experience. But the way that the um, multiverse stuff happens is. Um, Essentially, there is a hook that can lead you onto this following on path that gets you from from where you are to another reality. And it can be something as simple as snorting a fly up your nose. And hooking into that moment, you suddenly get to know and experience everything that that alternative life is. It could be... um, it could be Michelle Yao actress. It could be a martial arts specialist. It could be this. It could be that. It could be hot dogs. I will say no more than that because that is just brilliant and how they do that is phenomenal. Um, but they're just called jumping off points. And it's that random, unusual thing that just sparks a universal change. It's not just, oh, I went left instead of right. It could be. I I swallowed someone else's snot. And that that was the thing that just branched off and took me back to this other universe where I'm a completely different person with a completely different set of skills and completely different life. It sounds insane, but it works. It's so good. It is so, so good. I love it so much. It's interesting with directors of a film, uh, Daniel Shinert. Mm. And what's his name? Daniel Dan Kwan mm. seemed to have very little background in actual, um, yeah, film production. Most of their stuff seems to come is their first one of their first big features, I think. Mm. Um, most of their stuff seems to be mainly either television, some very brief television, or music videos. Mm. Um, so 
they look like they've worked with Gary Newman, friend of friend of one of our favorites. Um, yeah, uh, Kimbra Tenacious D. That's that's an advertisement for work for D. Yeah, um, but it sounds like they, we might have found a, a major talent here because I can, mm-hmm. I, I friend of a show Patria and friends of a show Patria and Greg went and saw it, I think mm-hmm. late last week, and I got an absolute glowing review from mm-hmm. the both of them. And the reason I had kind of thought maybe I won't see is because the Guardian gave it an absolute bake. Fuck them. This is amazing. And first bit of trivia on IMDb is to keep plot details under wraps before the trailer was released. The official IMDb synopsis read. A woman tries to do her taxes. <laughs> and that's brilliant. This is a genuine celebration of the incredible talent that is Michelle Yao, as well as the simplicity uh, and value of family and how the smallest thing can change everything. It's absurd it's brilliant it feels a little bit terry gillingham in his prime it's just incredible um i don't know i don't even know how long it is i don't know uh yeah two hours and 19 minutes this flew by in comparison to ray and like i said this got me laughing so much in the cinema it has been a long time since I laughed repeatedly in a movie. <sighs> Loved it. And it got a standing ovation afterwards. Everyone in the cinema was just standing ovation. This was a Tuesday night, weeks after it had come out, and it was pretty much a packed screen. But why do people applaud in the cinema? No one from the film's there. I don't know. It's just I was yeah, so moved there. I have to. It kind of, I, get, I see it happen at film festivals and I've been there and I'm like, Really? I mean, I guess there's the outside chance someone involved in the production could be at the film festival. Almost mm-hmm. certainly they're not because our film festival doesn't count. Um, <laughs> not fucking Khan or anything. Um, but, like, if it's Tuesday night at the, the, the freaking suburban cinema in Melbourne, who are you applauding? The guy, it's not even a guy in the booth. It's, it's just expressing your appreciation for a quality product. Well, I'm keen. To, another film I'm keen to see once my uh, mm. university commitments for this semester mm. are completed, which will be next Friday, fortunately. So, we'll and I may not have for the next two weeks. I may not have a new little independent movie to talk about, like I have the last two. But the next one on my radar is Alex Garland's Men. Well, that looks. Alex Garland is always worth a look. Uh, yeah. It was incredible. Yeah. Uh, what was the one that came to Netflix? I can't remember its name, but it was super fucking weird. Uh, um, Annihilation. Annihilation. Yeah. Uh, I had a few whiskeys and watched that. That was a bad idea. Yeah. That's, Don't that's do that. Bad. Yeah. Um, and of course, he wrote um, Sunshine. 20 Days Later. Um, the the Beach. Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, guy's an incredible talent. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he's the guy that wrote the now legendary Halo script, Halo movie, Halo movie script. Which now got right. have you? I'm very curious at some point to have a look at mm. the a TV show, the Paramount TV show. Um, the vast majority of people I've heard talk about it think it's garbage, mm. and every now and again you come across something that goes, "No, it's actually really good." Um, so at some point I might check it mm. out, uh, just out of pure curiosity, because the first Halo game had a good story. Um, which I enjoyed at the time anyway. So anyway, yeah. I was yeah. at, that was on the one that Peter Jackson was going to write. 
and that Microsoft paid a million dollars for him to write it or something. Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was an impressive feat. They even started building like the Warthog and things like that for it in preparation and it just fell apart before production even officially began. It happens from time to time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm very excited to see everything everywhere all at once. It's, um, mm -hmm. It sounds like a great little uh, film there. Yeah. Um, there's a connection to what we're going to talk about next, sort of. Sort of? <gasps> Could it be the, the Michelle, Michelle Yao connection? Who, of course, has been slumming it in Star Trek Discovery for the last few years. What a complete waste of talent that is. Mm. Um, you know, uh, from Michelle. And certainly none of the talents behind the camera, let me tell you right now. Uh, <laughs> so we've now had two episodes, at least I've spent to watch the first two episodes of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, which is the latest in the production line, the Kurtzman production line of Star Trek series uh, for, for Paramount. You can see how Paramount's kind of treating this a bit the way Disney's treated Star Wars and Marvel. It's like their, mm. it's their vanguard product. It's their, the one IP that Paramount seemed to have, apart from Halo, which they're sort of parading as mm. a, a reason to sign up their um, Paramount Plus streaming service. Um, interestingly, though, of course, Picard is on Amazon in Australia, not Paramount. Mm. And a few weeks ago, you would have heard me talk about Picard um, and what a massive disappointment. I mean, even after the horrid first season, season two still managed to disappoint massively. It's, it's you know, it's a bit like when someone gives you a free ticket to a concert and you go along and it didn't cost you anything and you still think, I want my money back. Um, it, it was that awful. Discovery, I think I was thinking really hard about this. I think I kind of got into it by the end of season one. The halfway through season two, they're completely undone, all their good work. And every time I've tried to go back, and people go, no, no, it's got better, it got better. And you go back and you try and watch it, you're like, no, and i got to get it. The thing about that show is, is each season is an arc. So you, mm -hmm. if you can't just jump back in in season four, if you no doubt in season two, you've got to get through all of season two and three. To catch up on the storyline, otherwise you got no idea who anyone is or what's going on. Um, and I, I know I'm not going to. I struggle to understand what anybody who claims to have been a long-term Trek fan sees in that show. I struggle mm. to understand what they see in Picard. Mm. Uh, some people do enjoy it, but I, I don't get it. I think they're awful. Um, uh, I haven't. I saw a couple episodes of Below Deck, which is the adult Rick and Morty ish animation. Mm. A lot of people tell me it's pretty good. I didn't really like it. Um, it had a. I don't want a Star Trek comedy. If I want a Star Trek comedy. Make me another Galaxy Quest. You know, like or or your Porky's in space. Porky's in space would be cool. Or maybe even the Orville has a slightly comedic edge still in parts, and mm -hmm. it kind of does it. I think it does it better. Mm. Anyway, then there's a Star Trek Genesis, I think that's what it's called, which is the kids' cartoon show, uh, which I have not seen at all. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't even know if it's out or where you watch it in Australia, but, again, I know some people who have kids who are Trekkies, but hmm. the adult is a Trekkie, and they sit down and they watch it with their kids to try and indoctrinate them in the obviously superior Star franchise. Um, yes, that was a Star Trek thing. Sorry, long intro. So here we have Strange New Worlds, uh, a prequel to Star Trek of the original series. The show will focus on the crew of the USS Enterprise under Captain Christopher Pike. So if you are a true Trekkie, true, I don't want to say, if you're a long-term Trekkie, you'll realize that the original pilot of Trek 
uh, Star Trek back in the sixties before they cast William Shatner um, mm. was under it was a show had Captain Pike was the, the captain of the Enterprise, and then when they recast the role, or well, they didn't recast the role, they, they rejigged it mm-hmm. and had it more as a Western in space with um, Shatner as Kirk instead of Christopher Pike. The character of Christopher Pike did actually come back and feature famously in an episode of of the original series where he was horribly malformed from some sort of accident. He was in a wheelchair with a free flashing lights on the front. Um, really cheesy special effects. And that's um, how you get Daleks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're crossing the streams. Um, <laughs> so it's an interesting idea, and I believe from mem- vague memory that I think um, this crew turned up at some point in Discovery for some okay. sort of time travel angle or something. So we have um, Anson Mount as Captain mm-hmm. Chris, Captain Christopher Pike. Of course, we talked about him last week. He played um, Black Bolt Black in, in, in um, the Multiverse, and I believe in the other the un Inhumans. Inhumans, yeah. Um, probably the only name I think I really recognise in here. Um, yeah. Uh, the rest of it's a pretty newish cast. We do have a, the character of Spock, mm-hmm. played by Ethan Peck. We have Nurse Chapel, which is a throwback to the original series as well, played by Jess Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Uhura um, popping up here, played by Celia Gooding. Um, then the other familiar name here you might know if you're a hardcore Trekkie, uh, not even a hardcore, <laughs> is uh, Leanne Noonien Singh, played by Christina Chong. Uh, I imagine that surname will mean yeah. something to Trekkies everywhere, and I'm not going mm-hmm. to explain it for you if you don't know, because you should watch. Here's the thing. I've been incredibly sceptical about this show. I've been hurt a lot lately by one of my <laughs> one of my favourite, favourite TV franchises is basically being taken over by a talentless hack and his team of freaking vandals who have tried to use this as... Everything is not. They've tried to insert it with you know, turn the show into something. You know, you, you put the uh, the label of Star Trek on it, but you know inside is dog shit. You know, um, <laughs> it's just been. It's really been disappointing because I loved this when I was younger, and it had been. I think the last series I enjoyed was probably Voyager, and that's in the nineties. I didn't really get into Enterprise terribly much. Mm. I did like some of the Abrams films. I know that's unfashionable to say. Mm-hmm. This is actually really fucking good. Like, it's actually, the first two episodes are really fucking good. And it's like, I can't speak to how successful the other shows have been because they're streaming mainly and Mm -hmm. they get ratings. I mean, Discovery's got five seasons, so they've been sticking at it. Um, Picard has three seasons, but, I mean, I don't feel like they've really been particular. But at least the people I listen to who are Trek fans hate it. Mm. So it's kind of here they've kind of woken up and gone, hmm. So... Star Trek had a lot of people who used to like it. And they used to like it how, you know, it used to be, you know. Mm. They liked how it felt, the kind of stories we told. A lot of those people talk now, you hear it endlessly, people like me who go, Jesus Christ, the Orville is the natural inheritor of what Trek used to do. Mm. And they've gone, hmm, well, do you think if we made a show that actually felt like Star Trek, Star Trek fans might watch it? What if we made He's a crazy idea, people. What if we made a Star Trek show for Star Trek fans? It'll never work. Crazy idea, but it might just, you know, like, that's what they've done here. And it really <laughs> fucking works. And I can't tell you what a gorgeous, beautiful thing it is to see. 
Like, <laughs> I can't tell you how nice it is. It's like sitting around with an old friend again. Um, I was, like I said, I was very, very skeptical about this, but mm-hmm. for starters, this is an anthology series in a way. It's not a season wide arc like all okay. the other Trek shows, apart from the cartoons, like Discovery and Picard have big stories they tell over eight, nine, ten episodes, mm-hmm. which is kind of a modern trend. Yeah. You know? uh, whereas I guess the, the, the Trekky way of doing things with the original series and Next Gen and all the other shows in the 90s. Uh, and the early 2000s was each week is a different story. Mm. It can be continuing themes or continuing <laughs> characters or, or, you know, over sort of overarching events happening in the series. But each episode mm. is a self-contained story. You think about a show like The X-Files also yeah. very successfully did things like that. Mm. Or it was kind of a way TV was done for a very long time. I remember how special it felt every time you get to the end of an episode of like the next generation and it's like to be continued. And it's like, oh, what? Ooh, really? And they usually it do was, it as a, it's as a so pretty, rare. It was lovely. Hanger to do to do over the end of a season, your know, last episode yeah. of season, yada and you know, I remember um the one where um, Picard got turned into a Borg and you know it was the last episode of a season yes. and you had to wait six months to find out what happened. Um and I, you don't, again, you just don't really see that very often anymore. I can't think of too many big shows that actually tell you a separate story each week now. Um, it's unusual. Yeah. Um, if, you, if I'm forgetting something obvious, jump in and tell us. Um, but in, in Trek World, at least, this is, this is quite unique for in the first time we've had this for a very long time. And it's enjoyable. It's mm-hmm. like you can think is if you wanted to, you could dip in and out. You could do that thing where you're like, I'm just going to start at episode five. And you don't necessarily need to know what's happened in the last four episodes. I think at this stage, they haven't come out yet. But, like, all you need to figure out is who's who in the crew. And you can just jump in and enjoy the story. Um, And it's not, I guess, a criticism of this could be it's not doing anything particularly different. Mm. And it's fan service in the sense it's pandering to the kind of stories that fans want to see. I would argue... This has been going through my head and going, am I just enjoying this because it reminds me of what Trek used to be? Mm. And partially, yes, yes, it is. But the story is kind of cool as well. Um, when I compare it to say, I know they were trying to do fan service. I talked about it a few weeks ago with Picard. Mm. And all the fan service in Picard was, hey, remember this? Huh? Huh? Mm. Huh? Remember that gag from Star Trek 4? The guy from the, the speaker and the, the Mohawk, we did it again. <laughs> Star Trek 4? The same guy. Uh, 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 the same guy. Get off the uh, stage. They were like, you know, did you, did you get that Easter egg? Did you get that? It was a, it was a reference to, yeah. <gasps> yes. <laughs> yeah. I was like, do you remember? I remember. Uh, it's, it's, it's all member berries. It, yeah. And you're like, and it was just like, yes, I remember. Have you got anything new? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not doing that in this episode. When I, yeah, I don't feel like at least the first two episodes have been callbacks of previous stuff. There's no twinks and nods at the audience. He's very earnest, which is, again is nice. It's mm. nice. It's not cold and cynical mm. and dark like you know, uh, you know, the Discovery has been. It's a very mm. cynical show, I think. Mm. Um, it's actually got those themes that we like talking about in Trek over. The, the, the better future, you know, uh, earnest, honourable people trying to do good in the universe. And, you know, mm. it's, it's, it's always, you know, the, the future we'd like to have, you know. Um, 
and people, you know, heroes, you know, like people like a show that shows optimism, opt- an optimistic future um, of people exploring the universe and trying to figure things out and, you know, um, reasoning their way through situations using diplomacy and intelligence. Um, so episode two, for example, mm. uh, which I just watched last night, is called, when did we go here? Excuse me a second. Uh, Children of a Comet. An ancient alien relic thwarts the Enterprise crew from regrouting a comet on track to strike an inhabited planet. Um, and so, look, I don't want to give too much away, but there's a comet's about to crash into a planet. They're trying to direct it away. But this other ship turns up. It's way bigger and way more powerful. And they said, fuck off, you're not doing that. That comet's really special to us. I'm not going to give the rest away. And, you know, I don't know what they're doing Discovery. Maybe they'd travel through time and kill their families before they were born or something so that the spaceship never came. I don't fucking know. I'm sure Space Jesus would have been involved. Um, but, you, you know. <laughs> no, it's, uh, what's her name? Um, I can't even remember her name in the show. It's been that long since I watched it. It's Space Jesus. Everyone knows who Space Jesus is who's ever watched Discovery. Um, the girl who was Sonequa Martin-Green. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I know who you mean. Yeah. What's up? I don't know. <laughs> space Jesus. Um, and, you know, that's, I mean, we've got Space Jesus in Discovery and we have uh, the Space Elf. Michael Burnham. Michael Burnham. Um, I'm sure she would have figured it all out because she always does in that show. Um, God, she's a pain in the ass. I come back person. It's just everywhere, everything all at once in a bad way. Um, so, <laughs> Um, as I said, Anton Mount is just inhabits the role of Pike beautifully. Mm. Like um, it's almost a Shatner-esque performance. It's beautiful. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ranting here a little bit. I can't tell you how good it feels to be back in the universe I love with characters I enjoy watching, with cool stories. You know, cool, optimistic, interesting, intelligent stories. Mm. So. I- it's amazing we just came out of the same studio. I can't believe it. I did a quick little Google search on biggest current TV shows to see how many, if any, had just that single kind of anthology kind of feel to it, whereas not they can have a standalone episode. None. The closest that you got was literal anthology shows like Black Mirror, like Sex Life, uh, Love, Sex and Robots, uh, love death and robots um those literally are it if a song the story of a week is gone it's not yeah. a thing anymore so look i, I think this is look, if you like trek uh, and if you're like me and you're like uh mm, i've been burnt too many times i am staying away from the kurtzman verse mm-hmm. feel safe you can come back this is the the warm embrace of Trek awaits you, at least for the first two episodes of this show. <laughs> you know, um, I you haven't quite, you know, fool me once, Alice Kurtzman. You know, shame on you. Um, but I, I, I wonder what's different. I find the whole thing very strange. I just always felt like Trek was a fairly niche IP. Mm. Like I didn't feel like it had the mass appeal of, Star Wars. It never had the mass appeal of Star Wars. No. Um, or it, it, they haven't, the films haven't gained, they were, the first couple were very successful, mm. um, especially the first one. 
uh, of the Abrams films, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, they never acquired the mass appeal of the Marvel films or superhero mm-hmm. films, for example. Like, yeah. you know, so as an IP to be kind of the battering ram of your streaming service, which seems to be what Paramount are doing with it. Yeah. Um, it was a strange choice. I guess it was maybe it was the only big one that they had left and they thought they could leverage in such a way. Like, I don't know what else they own, but it, it just seemed like a really niche choice that they were kind of like, okay, we're going to make six different Trek shows at once, which they're kind of well, five shows, I can think. So Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Genesis, and this is five different Trek shows on TV right now. Um, and that's really weird. Like, even Disney don't do that. Like, we hmm. had... We get one Trek, we get one Star Wars show every few months, and that's about it. Mm. Um, it's a really weird situation that they've got in that studio, and I kind of, kind of, yeah, it's, other than to say that I guess they kind of realized that somebody realized somewhere that they were mm. leaving a lot of money on the table with this in the sense that, well, you know, the people who actually, look at everybody, we're not as, we're not a monolith Trek fans, but, a very large portion of Trek fans have absolutely no love for the kind of product that they're, they're creating. I okay. always felt that they were kind of making Trek for people who didn't like Trek. Mm. Um, and, you know, people who liked Game of Thrones might like Discovery a bit more or something like that. So maybe they've just gone, oh, well, you know, um, I, I think there was a lot of a lot of really positive feelings about Anton Mount and uh, Co. Mm. Uh, so I forgot the other big name here, Rebecca Ramin. Rebecca oh, Ramin. yeah. Silly. Mystique. Mystique, of course. Uh, and she was married to John Stamos once. <laughs> um, but, you know, they, they appeared, like I said, they appeared on Discovery, and I feel like there's a lot of really positive feelings mm. about that, um, about their appearance. And, you know, and they kind of thought, hey, well, you know, there's space here for a Trek show that's kind of like Star Trek for a change. Star Trek. Now, according to uh, Wikipedia, the Paramount Picture franchises that are still active and solely under Paramount control are The Addams Family, Friday the 13th, The Godfather, Indiana Jones, uh, Mission Impossible, Naked Gun, Nickelodeon movies, Popeye, whatever Ryan verse is, I don't know what that is, Spike Oh, yeah, that would be it, yeah. Um, Spy Kids, Star Trek, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Top Gun, and Transformers. Well, we have got a new Top Gun film coming out very soon. So, yes, we have. Uh, maybe we'll make a TV show. Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Um, they're doing a lot of very strange... I saw a, a, a clip today of... Or sorry, a still from the Echo TV series they're doing for Disney, which is a spin-off from Hawkeye. Um, that's like, it's like you can't go really okay. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that's sure. after we saw the She Hulk trailer today, which I think we talked about. You and I talked about a little online. It was like with mm-hmm. the CTIs of it, mm, okay. Yeah, and I don't like, understand. Like, one of one of the people that was talking in the chat was uh saying, Oh, maybe it's early CGI. It's like, yeah, maybe it is, but why the fuck would you? show it if it's not finished yet because this is a cgi character and it needs to look good it does not look good it looks like the way eric banner's hulk looked in the the ang lee weird choice which 
I'm a strange fan of, but the CGI still didn't look good there. Um, I don't know. And there's there's been this week. There's been a lot of rumors surfacing about that show being a mess. That trailer does nothing to assuage that at all. So mm, there seems to be very quick diminishing returns on Disney Marvel TV shows. And uh, just a note in one of the things you mentioned in that that list of Paramount properties was Indiana Jones, and that isn't theirs anymore. Maybe they distributed it or something, but yeah. that's a Disney property, I think. And maybe we'll get around to making that fourth film eventually. We never know. They shouldn't. They should just leave it at three. It is. It it is. I'm sure they will. They're very respectful of um, IP that they own. And just leave, this, <laughs> leave it alone. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my rant on, on Strange New Words. It's mm. really fucking good. It makes me feel really good. It really is a wonderful, beautiful reminder of mm. something I loved very, very deeply once upon a time. And I don't want to be – I'm really glad that all of a sudden they've stopped making me feel bad mm. for liking something the way, you know, you, you like will. it. You know, I liked it. I liked how they used to tell the stories. And mm. yeah, I really, it's really a nice return to, like I said, it's like returning to be with friends, which is interesting because we don't know most of these characters. They're kind mm. of new. It's, it's a new version of Spock. It's a new version of Ahura. Mm. But it kind of feel like you kind of feel like you know them, which is actually a really impressive achievement for a show mm. two episodes in. Excellent. Excellent. I'm not going to be getting Paramount Plus. I refuse to get another fucking service because um, <laughs> there's just too many and it's too expensive to sign up to all of them. Uh, my, my rule is uh, uh, one in, one out. That's fair. So yeah. when I sign up for Disney, I cancel Stan. Yeah. When I was talking earlier about Apple, I'm like, Look, it's a good shit in Apple. Mm. Maybe I should cancel Netflix and get Apple instead because we can't be a long time. We'll talk, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that off air. Yeah. But that has been our show, ladies and gentlemen. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. We had the middling uh, mild success of Ray, okay, of Jamie Foxx's amazing performance. We're going to be watching Prisoners next week for our chain movie. Um, I talked, I gushed all over two of the new um, Apple Plus shows of Shining Girls and Slow Horses. And next week, I will be talking about another new show um, with Claire Danes and Tom Hiddleston, The Essex Serpent. So um, that's another Apple TV show that I'll talk about. Um, Travis talked about Strange New Worlds and the Lost City, the Lost City, the big misfire there, I think. And again, I talked about everything everywhere all at once, which everyone must go and see. There is a, already a universe where you have seen it and you are in this position telling everyone else to go and see it. So just give your other version of yourself a break and do it yourself. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's it for the week. Very well. Thank yeah. you, everyone, for listening and watching. If you were watching, hello to Richard. Thank you for watching earlier. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you for downloading. Mm -hmm. as usual. Yep. Do send in suggestions if you have things you'd like yes. to see. Yes. Need a reason. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we watch Thomas the Tank Engine. We'll do it. Don't you worry about that. Yes. And, Siren, your time is coming. Oh, yes. Revenge is a dish best served cold. So oh, yes. Oh, yes. On that note, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Good night. Good night.